join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Now, here is Arturo to set the stage for our newest and greatest series of episodes to date, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock. In the not-so-humble opinion of yours truly curmudgeons, there have been four golden ages of rock. The first, obviously, being that period in the 1950s when rock and roll exploded. Uh, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, etc. You know what I mean. The second golden age was the mid-60s to about the very early 1970s. This was essentially bookended by the emergence of the Beatles and the demise of the Beatles and filled in in the middle by everything that happened in between and there was a lot that happened in those years. You can make the case that this is the most important of the four golden ages, but that's another discussion. The third golden age was basically that mid to late 1970s punk, post-punk, new wave era that started roughly around 1976 and lasted until about 1981 when MTV changed everything, especially the way we listened to and consumed music and the way we view viewed rock stars as well. All this brings us and now it brings us all to the fourth and final golden age of rock, which is essentially essentially the decade of the 1990s, particularly the period of 1991 to 97. Why? Well, stating the fact, this period saw an ungodly amount of timelessly classic albums from both the US and the UK that changed the rock music landscape with aftershocks still being felt to this day. This is a period that saw bands and artists embrace the classicist pop songcraft of the 1960s, channel the heavy sounds of 1970s punk and metal, absorb the intensity and DIY philosophy of 1980s underground alternative and indie rock. They assimilated all of it and they produced something really new and genuine and original out of those influences. And they unleashed new rock sounds that served as anthems and soundtracks to a new generation of rock fans, much like the explosion of 1960s rock was to the baby boomers. It's important to know as well that the new ground broken in both hip hop and electronic music in the 1990s is enough to warrant podcast episodes or documentaries devoted entirely to each of those genres. Nevertheless, it's through the prism of rock that we can see how these two genres, which dominate pop music today, infiltrated rock's DNA in order to spawn several subgenres that refreshed and enlivened the genre to a peak of creativity and innovation that arguably had not been seen since the hollowed 1960s. And that's saying something, because I'm a big fan of 70s music. This is by far our most ambitious series, as it will span nine episodes. 
nine episodes for the 90s, get it? Ha ha ha. Of which this is the first. And this episode, which we've subtitled Rumblings in the Underground, will analyze the period of 1987 to 1990, which served as a preface or a prelude, if you will, for the explosion of rock and roll awesomeness and genius that was the year 1991, the year zero for alternative and indie rock infiltrating the mainstream. This period of time that we call the fourth golden age of rock, roughly 1991 to 97, was also the last time rock music as a whole was part of the pop cultural zeitgeist, really, and the last time it was a huge force in mainstream music. For several reasons, that all ended by the beginning of the new century, and we'll get to the reasons why eight episodes further on. But for now, let's look back and enjoy that time when us music geeks knew something special was going on in our beloved rock and roll. So special that in our 40s, we'd be recording podcasts memorializing that time. So, all our curmudgeonly curmudgeonly listeners out there, let the fourth golden age of rock officially begin again. Arturo, we're here, man. Fourth golden age of rock. Uh, We've been working real hard on this for a long time. Very excited. Yeah, this is the first episode of a nine-part series that is basically the culmination of everything we've been leading up to since we started this podcast. This is something that we've actually... or. Yeah, I mean, we've actually been thinking about this and planning this since before the podcast even started. I would even argue that the podcast is basically a reason <laughs> for this series. Yeah. Um, um, we've been talking about this for a long time, what the fourth golden age and arguably the final uh, golden age of rock is. And uh, I, I will explain it in more detail in, in a few minutes uh, or later on in this episode. But uh, this is something that we've been really, really excited about for a long time. Um, I mean, everyone knows the different golden ages of rock. No one likes to talk about the 1990s that much as the fourth golden age, but we are making that claim. Uh, But before uh, we get going uh, uh, with the fourth golden age of rock, uh, we need to uh, take our usual foray uh, to the other side of the space-time continuum. Welcome again uh, here to the Parallel Universe. Uh, We do this uh, every episode if you're uh, new uh, to uh, these parts. Uh, This is where Arturo and I, uh, we pretend that rock and roll is still the dominant force, cultural musical force, and uh, one, a rock band of any kind can still uh, fill up a stadium, and it sure as hell isn't Coldplay, uh, which may be the one (laughs) you do it the closest right now. But here's a world where, you know, like folks that uh, are mostly underground or aren't really getting all that much love uh, would be the famous ones. And so each week we pick an album uh, of newish uh, vintage uh, that we want to introduce to you. Arturo, uh, you're up first. Uh, You're going back to Britain, aren't you? Yes, I am. My album selection for a parallel universe where rock music is still an integral part of the pop cultural fabric is the recently released debut album by the Leeds England Quartet, Yard Act. It is called The Overload. Uh, Like I said, it's their debut album. And let's put this out there right now. 
Yard Act are not the first British band to take post-punkish, angular indie rock and meld it with funk and spoken word vocals drenched in socio-political anger and indignation. But they are fun. They're funny. They're funky as hell. And when they rock out, they have righteous punk rock fury. Now, I know there's another new British band out there called Dry Cleaning. We covered their debut album last year, who also employs a spoken word vocalist. The difference between Yard Act's James Smith and Dry Cleaning's Florence Shaw is that Smith is actually witty. (laughs) He's actually funny. He has something intelligent and purposeful to say, and he doesn't meander in abstract gibberish. He also intersperses his vocal attack with actual singing and various phrasings, not the same monotonous incantation song in and song out. But back to Yard Act, the band. This is a classic case of a Gen Z band reclaiming British indie rock from the doldrums and redefining it for a new generation with their own stamp on it. After listening to the album and you know, finally absorbing Smith's character narratives of a culturally dying Britain, you get the sense that this is the band you wish Arctic Monkeys would have evolved into rather than the hipster posers that they've become. Um, see some good tracks. Okay. You got the murky funk of Dead Horse, one of the best tracks on the album. Uh, it tackles the issue of British identity better than any song in recent memory. You cannot beat lines like this. The last bastion of hope this once great nation had left was good music, but we didn't nurture it, instead choosing to ignore it. Yes, we've been trapped by the same crowd that don't like it unless they've heard it before, leaving me stuck flogging my progressive dead horse south of the border to the so-so and so-and-sos and through-and-throughs and this and that. I'm buttered breads and proud of it, whose values flit whenever it fucking suits them, and we're supposed to let it slide because the press have normalized the idea that racism is something we should humor. Another standout track, Payday, uh, excoriates middle and upper class dandies who fetishize the lifestyle of the poor and the lower classes while it grooves along on a sharp as fuck funk that breaks down into jittery synth stabs reminiscent of that lost great UK post-punk band from the early 1980s, This Heat. I guarantee you, folks, this is the only podcast in music podcast land that will mention this heat. (laughs) Um, A more more cynical person would say that this is just a more musically polished version of The Fall with more comprehensible lyrics. Well, to me, that sounds like a winning formula for the best debut album of the year so far. What say you, Cristobal? Yeah, actually, uh, I was thinking uh, the Arctic Monkeys and and the fall uh, as well. Here is what I would offer, uh, folks. Uh, This is a, you couldn't, and this was a happy accident. Last episode, uh, we spent uh, about 10 minutes absolutely flambaying this other Gen Z kind of spoken wordish kind of avant uh, band that we both think is a heap of shit called Black Country New Road. And so uh, th- that is Gen Z getting this kind of shtick wrong. This album is Gen Z getting this kind of shtick very right. right. Yeah, and so uh, it, it's definitely worth noting uh, that contrast. Uh, I will say this. Uh, you mentioned dry cleaning. Uh, there's this new 
tendency in, in British rock. Like I said, all of a sudden there's a spoke speak singing or spoken word kind of uh, where the front man does it. There's monologia uh, with great music, uh, but monologia. And so I think this band uh, fits somewhere between Slayford Mods, which is the best at doing it. Um, they're just a fun, uh, just brilliantly uh, original band. And then like on the other extreme would be dry cleaning, which I covered on the parallel universe uh, about a year ago and kind of damned it with faint praise. Uh, I thought that it was certainly worthy of attention and coverage, but uh, ultimately, like you said, it's just a bunch of gibberish. So yeah, uh, enjoyable album, funny, uh, actually does have a few things to say and it's much, much better than black country, new road. So, uh, Hey, you know, I could say worse things. So we go from, uh, great Britain and we come back uh, to the U S and specifically Austin, Texas. And I am going to be uh, talking about the new album by of all bands spoon. Uh, Lucifer on the sofa. And I say of all bands because I know a lot of you out there will probably be saying at this point, so Chris, uh, why the hell are you covering Spoon in the parallel universe? Uh, We all know that band. We all know they're pretty much legendary at this point. You know, Austin becoming cool and on the Vanguard again and all of that. Hell, uh, you could say their early stuff uh, help define uh, a major part of our adult soundtrack. Hey, you know, I just listened to, I turned my camera on in the car just today. Fair points. But tell me this, uh, what can you tell me about the albums uh, they put out most recently before 2022? Can you name a truly classic song of theirs that came out after the underdog uh, from 2007? Ga, 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 ga. Again, uh, that's before this year. Well, here we are, and let me retort officially. Spoon's Lucifer on the Sofa, released on February 11th, is by far the best, uh, the band's best album uh, since Ga 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 Ga. Hell, I contend this thing is even better than that one, and comes pretty damn close to matching 2005's Gimme Fiction. Uh, yeah, I actually do mean that. Uh, Britt Daniel is writing and playing like he means it again after a couple of uh, flop uh, albums in uh, the last decade. Uh, Now, that's a gift to the rest of us. Uh, I think you can count on the the number of singular and truly original voices in this amorphous thing that we call indie rock on maybe eight hands uh, total, uh, maximum ten hands. Uh, These are the fingerprints, if you will. And one of those sets of indie rock fingerprints absolutely belongs to Britt Daniel. Uh, I can refer to the best of Daniel's work as containing what I'll call supple swagger. Uh, As a songwriter and band leader, he makes what he does just sound so so effortless, uh, almost like it's disembodied. On Lucifer on the Sofa, songs like the snappy and snippy, the hardest cut, the sensual swinger wild, and the unbelievably confident title track with its horns and echoing keys and a quirky but perfectly placed melody that God himself might as well have uh, inserted there, restore uh, Daniel's mastery. Uh, Now, like I think most of you from just hearing this, I really didn't see this coming. 
uh, I thought we'd get more phoned in spoon by numbers, which we'd been getting the last couple of records. Nope. Uh, and here's the most surprising thing. I don't think they've ever rocked harder than they do here at its most forceful moments. I mean, the the drums just land harder and more brutally. Uh, The guitars crunch uh, more convincingly. Uh, And everything else just has what I guess I can call a bit of a menace to it. And that is even including the ballads. Uh, So yeah, I did just cover a Spoon album here in the Curmudgeon Rocks Parallel Universe. That is not my fault. Blame Britt Daniel and Spoon Go listen to this awesome album as soon as you can. Uh, Arturo, I have a feeling that you may it, you may not disagree, but you're probably more lukewarm. No, actually, I, I, this album has warmed up on me a lot. I, I think it's a really, really great record. Um, two things I want to say about the, why we're talking about Spoon in the parallel universe. Yes, we are, because in a parallel universe where rock music, real good rock music, were still a thing, Spoon would be a stadium band on the level of Coldplay. <laughs> okay. There you um, go. Yeah, so th- that's why we're talking about Spoon in the parallel universe. Spoon doesn't play venues... That are that 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 that, that contain more than two thousand people. Um, they should have been much bigger. <laughs> um, the second thing I want to say is that about this album, Lucifer on the Sofa, it's a testament to how location can make a difference. <laughs> um, Spoon in twenty ten, they put out their album Transference, and uh, that was kind of, uh, that produced a moderate hit for them on rock radio called The Mystery Zone. Not a huge hit, mind you, but it was it, it got they got some airplay, and it was it was probably it was their highest charting album at that point at that at that time. And then after Transference, they moved to Los Angeles, and and moving to LA coincided with the release of two albums: 2014's They Want My Soul, 2017's Hot Thoughts. Um, neither of them were very good. Um, they're, you know, Spoon always were, were known for this, this, this sharp, really tight, uh, metronomically rhythmic, um, really sharp, precise sounds. Uh, and with these two albums, they kind of went into that, you know, typically in, they, 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 they made, in my opinion, a few too many conventions to indie rock or indie pop by doing a, a delving a little too much into a moody, mellow, ethereal, droning synths kind of indie rock that has been yeah. you know, the de rigueur for the last decade. Yeah, that's fair. And, and, and that coincided with them going to L.A. They went to L.A. and they kind of sort of sold out with those two records, um, trying to be a conventional indie pop band or indie rock rock, I guess, uh, using the loose terms, more of indie pop. And uh, they, they stopped sounding like Spoon. Now, normally, I think it's a good thing when bands try to eschew their normal formula and do something different. I think it's great, but let's keep in mind that it's not always successful. <laughs> it, doesn't always, it doesn't always work. And in Spoon's case, it didn't really work. Uh, and those two albums are not very good. Guess what? Uh, last year, during a pandemic era, they moved back to Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. All the, lo and behold, guitars are back. 
Yep. <laughs> and a whole lot of them. And uh, that's what we get with Lucifer on the Sofa, which is, I, I think, at least their best album since Transference. Um, I think it may be a little better than Ga 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 Ga, but it, uh, but it's definitely their best album since Transference. I, I'm a big fan of Transference. I like the raw, um, almost demo sound quality of that album. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, um, this is Spoon getting back on track, kind of like you know, like several episodes ago, My Morning Jacket. After like a decade of shit, you know, got back with a really good album, their self-titled album yeah. from last fall. Well, no, Spoon is the next one of that generation or that era yeah you know, to, to get back on track your resonant curmudgeons recently switched our hosting platform to podbean and what a move it's proving to be for the equivalent of nine bucks a month we get quality reliable hosting that allows us to distribute the curmudgeon rock report wide and far to all the places where you find all of the other podcasts we also get to customize a pretty good website Visit us at curmudgeonrock.podbean.com. And we also receive some excellent statistics that tell us when and how you listen to this here creation. Most importantly, Podbean is its own community of podcasters and opens us and you to some pretty incredible music podcasts besides this incredible one. We urge you to especially check out History in Five Songs with prolific writer Martin Popoff and Song Exploder, which expertly guides listeners through the making of a great pop song. Podbean, it ain't bad. So, the fourth golden age of rock that we are going to embark on. Um, Like I said earlier, uh, or you listeners who have heard, um, basically it's the 1990s, particularly that streak of 1991 to 97. And in this nine-part series, we will have episodes devoted to each of those years. But before we go into, you know, 1991, in our opinion, is the big, the ground zero, the explosion year um, for this golden age. But before we go into that, this particular episode, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a, it will serve as a prelude. Uh, we're not doing countdowns, uh, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, nothing like that. But we are doing 10 segments slash movements slash events um, that led or, or dovetailed into you know, the, the explosion of the fourth golden age of rock that started in 1991. And as, as we've mentioned earlier, we're covering the years 1987 to 1990, uh, talking about not just um, the events, the, 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 the sub-genre scenes that were going on, the important albums, the important bands and artists, and just overall everything during these few years that kind of fed into uh, what became and uh, the fourth golden age of rock and uh, why this uh, these these events these albums these artists these scenes the births the births of these subgenres why they were so important uh, so that's what this episode is we're going to go into ten important events slash movements slash segments, not counting them down, just saying what they were that really, really helped give birth to the fourth golden age of rock. And so Arturo, uh, start us off. Yeah. The first segment that we really need to talk about is what is a segment that I call sickness in Seattle. 
as you can guess, it's the whole grunge thing, you know? Uh, and, and anytime you're talking about the fourth golden age of rock, the 1990s, you got to start with grunge <laughs> and you got to start with Seattle. Um, so much has already been written and filmed about the grunge rock scene that emerged in Seattle in the 1980s. And the one question people keep coming back to is why? Why did this happen in Seattle? Why did this at the time unfashionable and for some unfathomable hybrid of punk rock and heavy metal that would revolutionize rock for the next decade, uh, ushering in the genre's fourth golden age? Why did it originate in this unfashionable city? And why did it have such a strong grip on a generation of music fans? proving to be a, a transformational moment in millions of young people's musical tastes. The answer to the latter uh, will come in the next installment of our fourth Golden Age series that will focus on the year 1991. As for the former question as to why, uh, Doug Prey's wonderful 1996 documentary, Hype, and uh, two oral history books, Greg Prado's Grunge is Dead, The Oral History of Seattle Rock Music from 2009, and Mark Yarm's Everybody Loves Our Town, A History of Grunge from 2011. Uh, they all came to a basic conclusion that can be summed up in two words, weather, location. Um, first, let's talk about weather. I've never been to Seattle or the Pacific Northwest in general, but one thing I know is that it rains there. A lot, a hell of a lot. And sometimes it snows a lot too. Uh, the film Hype with all the people in and interviewed uh, does a really good job of illustrating how hermetic social scenes in Seattle can be. And if you're a passionate music fan or musician, when the weather sucks outside, what choice do you have but stay inside and listen to your favorite records? And when you listen to music, what kind of music will you be inspired to play or listen to when it's dreary, dark, rainy, and cold most of the year? It probably won't be the Beach Boys, you know? <laughs> this, this kind of weather and mood lends itself to endless days and probably endless nights taking big hits from the bong and listening to disaffected punk rock and down-tuned heavy metal. Um, second reason, that was, that's weather. Second and probably more importantly, we have location. Nowadays, Seattle is a major metropolis and one of the most developed, most modern, richest cities in the country. Hello, Microsoft. But uh, many decades ago, even up until the 1980s, Seattle was, while still a major city, a major city that was quite removed and isolated from all the other big cities. Remember, this is before the days of internet and social media, uh, before those things made access to the world one click away. Um, because of the city's relatively isolated geographical location, a lot of touring acts would bypass it on their itineraries. And while this sucked, if you were a music lover, this situation had an added blessing in that it forced the local music scene to self-actualize itself. It forced the artists and the musicians in the scene to be more aggressive in creating their own music, putting on their own shows, and because no one was really paying attention at the time, being bolder in creating and developing new forms in rock music that both orthodox punkers and orthodox metalheads would have found blasphemous. 
the scene that developed in Seattle numbered countless bands, and it was an incestual scene too. Band members jumped from one band to another band at the drop of a hat while still remaining in their nominal band. But as far as the phenomenon called grunge is concerned and its nascent stage in the mid-1980s, the Nexus really revolved around three bands, The Melvins, Green River, and Soundgarden. In our last episode that memorialized the career and legacy of Soundgarden, we briefly touched on uh, descriptions of these bands since they all appeared on the Deep Six compilation from 1986. That was essentially the first grunge album released. To reiterate, Green River are now known more for who was in the band than for their music. Vocalist Mark Arm and guitarist Steve Turner would go on to form Mudhoney, and bassist Jeff Ament and guitarist Stone Gossard would go on to form Mother Lovebone, the latter of whom would fracture and reform as Pearl Jam. Musically, they were, Green River that is, were a low-down and dirty hybrid of 1970s-style cock rock a la Aerosmith with loads of punk rock attitude and energy. Um, I've mentioned that the Deep Six compilation from 86 was the first grunge album released, but Green River's debut EP from 1985, Come On Down, was the first ever grunge release. Um, Their only album was really 1988's Rehab Doll on Sub Pop Records. And I put the word album in quotation marks because that record was essentially a compilation of recordings they made right before they broke up, almost a year before it was released. Nevertheless, in Green River, you can already hear the musical uh, DNA of grunge taking shape. The Melvins are always synonymous with grunge, and rightfully so because of the influence and impact they had on the Seattle scene. However, a cursory listen to their music reveals them to be a straight-up metal band. Um, Sludge metal would be a more apt description, and that's where their connection to grunge would come in. They took the dewy riffage of Black Sabbath and augmented it with the swagger and the ferocious drive of hardcore punk, particularly Black Flag. Uh, In the last episode, we eulogized and dived deep into Soundgarden, so without too much repetition, let's just say Soundgarden were probably the most quintessentially grunge of the early grunge bands, with their fusion of a gloomy metal and gloomy punk peppered with shades of progressive rock. Chris, do you have any faves from this early grunge pool? Uh, I do. Uh, I think that the Melvins and Tad... Uh, we're doing some really gnarly stuff uh, during this period. I know we talked about Tad a little bit on uh, the last episode. Uh, that that guy, I mean, if you just had, again, if you just had a picture, uh, a pictorial representation of grunge, all you have to do is put a fat guy in a plaid shirt and a wool cap uh, in front of it. And that's Tad Doyle. And, uh, and the there. greatest album title of all time, God's Balls. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. God's balls. Yeah. Uh, and followed up by salt lick, which apparently is, it's like two sides of the same coin, <laughs> salt lick and God's balls. Uh, but I digress. Uh, ultra mega. Okay. Uh, we talked about it a lot on the last uh, uh, episode of uh, our pack on this podcast. And uh, also it's worth mentioning, you know, the Jack and Dino uh, factory. Uh, he was the house producer, uh, for Sub Pop, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Nirvana's Bleach, yeah. which is probably the greatest of the uh, the pre-Grunge Explosion uh, albums. Uh, one thing that you didn't talk about, and I'm surprised uh, that, that you didn't. Uh, so 
many, 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 many years ago, uh, as I'm sure you will fondly remember, uh, you and I attended uh, Syracuse University in Syracuse, New yep. York, uh, many, many, many moons ago. And uh, that uh, city, my hometown, by the way, uh, competes with Seattle for the fewest sunny days in a given year, uh, every year. Uh, we are the two darkest, dreariest, shittiest weather cities uh, in America. Uh, like you said, there it always rains. Syracuse, it either rains, snows, sleets, or you know, just water hangs in the air. I'm sure it's the same thing in Seattle. That said, you made a very good point. When you're stuck in a place like that, um, all these guys are essentially college, collegiate folks. You know, Seattle back then was known as much for its its colleges and its collegiate uh, uh, scene as its weather. And so you have all these sort of college-aged, uh, bright guys who are students at a lot of the local schools hanging out in bars or at each other's homes and smoking a lot of pot uh, and doing other drugs, drinking beer, and just you know, get, getting their Black Sabbath on. And, and so they have all this time to in, indulge in their, their love of music. And here you go. Uh, you have one of the most organic uh, things imaginable um, between 86 and uh, 89. And it was a moment in time. I'm glad that you mentioned the, uh, the film Hype, uh, which is wonderful again. And it really does get into, you know, like talking to folks like Dead Moon and uh, Buzz Osborne and all these folks saying, yeah, it was just boring as fuck here. And we, w- we wore the plaid because it was cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so. Good uh, summation of of pre grunge there. Uh, any other yes, thoughts? Yes, oh, a lot of them. Um, since this episode is supposed to focus on the years 1987 through 90, let's do a quick rundown of the key grunge rock releases of this period that led up to the alternative rock explosion of 1991 that effectively kicked off the fourth golden age of rock. Shall we, Chris? Absolutely. Right, well, you mentioned... Uh, uh, drinking beer, smoking pot, and listening to Black Sabbath. Uh, no other band uh, 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 embodies that more than the Melvins. <laughs> and their 1987 debut album, Gluey Porch Treatments. Uh, this debut <laughs> album is a tour de force of sludgy yet gnarled riffs, thunderous and seemingly out-of-control drum fills, overwhelming heaviosity that portended the stoner rock movement of the 1990s, i.e. Caius, Fu Manchu, Monster, and even much of the groove-oriented southern prog metal of the 2000s, like Mastodon and Weed Eater. Um, It was if, after more than a decade of shitty bands saying how much they were influenced by Black Sabbath, the Melvins were raising their hands and saying, Hey, assholes, this is what a real Sabbath influence sounds like. Uh, 35 years later, this is still probably the Melvin's greatest work. Um, Soundgarden, well, the Screaming Life EP, we talked about this EP in our previous episode about Soundgarden, but needless to say, any EP that has Stone Cold classics such as Hunted Down and Nothing to Say is an essential one. Um, Another one we need to talk about, Mud Honey, Super Fuzz, Big Muff. Uh, oh, yeah. While not Grunge's first shot into the sky, it is arguably the first major one, the one that got the UK music press interested in the Seattle scene back in 1988 and got American major labels sniffing around the city. 
uh, like I said, Mark Arm, uh, singer guitarist Mark Arm, formed Mud Honey with his old Green River bandmate guitarist Steve Turner right after Green River broke up. Arm wanted to go in a more punk inflected direction, whereas Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard wanted to go into a more commercially oriented glam metal direction, as evident by what Mother Love Bone would eventually sound like. The combination of Mud Honey's debut EP and their debut single, Touch Me, I'm Sick, both on sub pop records, sent shockwaves throughout the US rock underground. Uh, Mud Honey's brash, snotty, in-your-face sound was much catchier and more immediate than their grunge forebearers, and arguably exemplifying and defining the grunge sound better than any band before or since. Uh, that audacious combination of bluesy slide guitar and punk riffage was the shot in the arm that rock music needed. And while Mud Honey have had a very long career, they've arguably never bettered this initial history-making blast of pioneering rock and roll. Um, have you heard Superfuzz Big Muff, Chris? Oh yeah, I mean that's it. It's a, kind of a silly record and a fun record, but it's awesome. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it, again, you know, like Mark Arm, uh, you know, when we had Ronan Giovanni right. on uh, the podcast, uh, you shared the wonderful excerpt that the Green River guys went to a Jane's Addiction uh, concert, yeah. and Mark Arm didn't get it. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, say what you want about that, but the guy, the guy had his own his his own voice, his own style, and. Uh, one of the more singular characters uh, of certainly of that scene and uh, his voice and his attitude uh, and his uh, tastes as far as the, the grunge sounds uh, really kind of helped uh, shape and form. Uh, he was one of the seminal members of that whole. Yeah, scene. absolutely. Water, uh, front I, I got to mention one more band, Chris. I know this is going to be a bone of contention for a lot of our listeners out there, and this is going to be a controversial opinion. Are you ready for this? Sure. Oh, boy. All right. I would like to end this segment by mentioning Mother Love Bone, uh, the band that guitarist Stone Gossard and bassist Jeff Ament formed after the dissolution of Green River, recruiting singer Andy Wood, previously from the band Malfunction. You mentioned, Chris, charismatic lead singers that you know, the Seattle scene had uh, in abundance. Well, this guy was one of them, <laughs> you know, uh, Andy Wood. However... I kind of didn't mention any of their recordings, and there's a reason I didn't rate their recordings. Uh, it's just one EP and one album that released that were released after Wood died, and I didn't mention that their recordings as essential pre 1991 grunge simply because I think they kind of sucked. <laughs> you know, um, Jack and Dino, Skin Yard guitarist and Seattle producer, virtually everyone, like you said, uh, Mud Honey's Mark Arm and Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thail have all gone on record saying that not only were they not fans of Mother Love Bone, but that Mother Love Bone were essentially a slightly Seattleized version of LA glam metal. Um, Thail in particular makes a point in Greg Prado's book, Grunge is Dead, that he much preferred Andy Wood's previous band, Malfunction, which could be effectively described as punk rock kiss. Um, the reason the reason he gave for this preference, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that with Malfunction, there was a wink-wink, tongue-in-cheek factor to the band. Um, they were goofing on rock cliches while glorifying them as well, always making sure the audience was in on the joke. 
Whereas Mother Love Bone, they lacked this self-consciousness. They actively tried to appeal to the spectrum of rock fandom that was enthralled to the MTV-driven fascination with Los Angeles hair metal. And this was understandable. After Green River, who never had any real success at all, broke up over creative differences, Ahmed and Gossard wanted to quote-unquote make it as a big rock band and glam metal, particularly of the kind heavily informed by Aerosmith and Kiss, both Gossard and Ahmed Faves, was the way to go. It's also understandable that after Woods' 1990 death by heroin overdose that ended Mother Love Bone, Amen and Gosser decided to take their music more seriously, not just their careers more seriously. Um, for as tragic as Woods' death was, it was the catalyst for Gossard and Amen's creative spark of songwriting, particularly Gossard's, that would result in the darker, more mature, more original sounds that would prove to be the perfect canvas for Eddie Vedder's tortured lyrics and moving voice in the band that would become Pearl Jam. Okay, well, Chris, we've talked a lot about Seattle. Let's now talk about a band that is underrated in their influence on the Seattle scene and pretty much all of American underground rock in the 1980s. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, we're talking about R.E.M. Uh, I think you may have heard of them. They're this little (laughs) band from uh, uh, Athens, Georgia. Uh, by the late 80s, uh, they were in an interesting spot. Uh, so throughout the early 80s, they had been uh, seminal in what we know and what has been dubbed uh, maybe lazily indie rock or college rock. Uh, they came up with this. Uh, it was a jangly sound and uh, intentionally uh, lo-fi and uh, intentionally a little obtuse uh, or uh, or a little uh, vague uh, in its or uh, ambiguous uh, in its lyrics and uh, in its mood, and uh, they became underground heroes. They became critical darlings, and so you get that. Well, by the late '80s, uh, they're making moves. They're growing as as musicians. They're getting more confident, and uh, they're headed uh, for a very special place. And uh, to use a, a term that Arturo affixed to this script, welcome to the mainstream occupation. Yeah. Uh, and that's essentially what happened. So let's get into this a little bit. So now I can really only imagine what it must have been like for a lot of young recent college graduates uh, back then, the inaugural members of Generation right. X, uh, to hear REM's single, The One I Love, on mainstream rock radio for the first time. Yeah. Now, by my mainstream radio, I mean any station whose frequency exp- extended beyond a college campus and wasn't programmed by someone uh, other than a 20-year-old future comic book guy. Yeah. Uh, or you know, maybe they saw this video. They see the video for uh, the one I love before midnight on MTV. Right. And, you know, that was back in the day where... You, you would see the one I love follow. Hey, Janet Jackson's when I think of you. It's like, holy shit. Yes. Uh, collegiate rock, or as we somewhat shallowly call it, indie rock had arrived uh, for its first bow uh, in the mainstream and was thrust out into the labels. And all these years later, uh, I can really just confidently say, thank God yeah. REM was that band in the forefront of what kicked off the decade of cool ass quasi subversive rock. Uh, that really defined a generation, as you said. Uh, its tentacles went into Seattle and in a lot of other parts too. Uh, a lot of LA bands 
uh, that were uh, active in the 1990s were very much influenced uh, by uh, REM. Think like, you know, uh, Counting Crows and bands like that. Also, also, also so, uh, the band from uh, that from Phoenix, Arizona called the Gin Blossoms, otherwise known as REM Light. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And well, that whole scene there, that whole, I mean, I lived out in Phoenix for a couple of years. All those bands. Uh, have REM uh, in their DNA. So it's, it's far and wide. Uh, let's, so they kicked it off and I'm glad they were the band because they were by far the most adventurous, most paradigm shifting and just plain old best band to make it out of the Athenses or the Austins or the Berkeleys or the Boston's or the Olympias or any of those other uh, collegiate scenes. I guess you could put uh, Minneapolis uh, in that too. They were by far the best of those bands. Uh, they really kind of created a scene, a movement, a sound, an aesthetic uh, that only continued to uh, grow and morph. And we're talking about them here because during 1987, that period, 1987 to uh, 1990, they're building a bridge to what eventually became their breakout right. uh, ultimate success and the sound and the template that we all know them uh, from. And so uh, the albums that come out during this period are ones that both of us uh, feel are uh, near masterpieces. And we're talking about Document yeah. from 1987 and then their major label debut, Green, uh, from 1989. Now, together, uh, these albums were a perfect distillation of the band's versatility and limitless spirit musically, but also their worldview, uh, one in which the young American fought to break apathy and hopelessness just as hard as uh, that young American did to highlight the dangers of American imperialism, uh, the dying labor movement, and other dark and cultural and political forces that obviously here we are now, that was kind of the beginning of, of that kind of dark uh, uh, path and REM uh, was all, all about it. So, so this predated their Zenith, right. which was really 1991's out of time. And so what you see again, to Document and Green are building this bridge and they're going from that sort of lo-fi uh, in your face uh, approach with the more ironic jangles and bangs and claps, uh, which were to me most notable and best on life's rich pageant, which was in 1986 to the more self-assured and braver face of out of time. And so that's a five year, yeah. uh, window with these two albums. Now the songs on document and green sound immediate and urgent, uh, especially document starts off with finest works on which must have been a shock for a lot of people. Uh, loud, uh, just intense, uh, banging riff, uh, kind of in your face with those drum drops and just uh, very anthemic chorus, just big, 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 big. Uh, whereas before they had been kind of, you know, they were the band that did uh, Radio Free Europe and Driver 8 and uh, Don't Fall on Me. And those things. And, and yes, there might have been a little bit of bombastic uh, filament in there, but it wasn't actually bombastic. And here they just out of the gate are there. And so they have that immediacy and urgency and uh, noise. 
but also these songs, uh, they challenge convention, uh, even as they serve up big, uh, buoyant, glorious pop hooks. Uh, the rockers rock much harder than they ever had. And the more pointive stuff was now really, really pretty. A uh, great example of this is World Leader Pretend uh, from Green. Uh, you know, just beautiful song. And also, this is the beginning in earnest of Mandolin Peter Buck. Yeah. Uh, uh, me- Mandolin Peter Buck, if you know nothing else about Peter Buck, you know Mandolin Peter Buck uh, from Losing My Religion and uh, other songs uh, from uh, the 90s. Now, uh, again, uh, REM had a voice, a sound, and a purpose in their music and absolute dynamite in the form of Michael Stipe's lyrics and persona. And that all of which uh, undoubtedly influenced many, many, many of the bands yeah. uh, that we'll talk about over the remainder of these uh, fourth golden age of rock uh, episodes. Arturo, what is your uh, take on REM? I think, again, the, these these two albums are great one-two setup. I mean, so the idea, you know, they're kind of like the... Uh, the, the two starting pitchers that come in and then you have the wonderful, yeah, like the Mariana Rivera of out of time and automatic for the people. I mean, I kind of see that it's ultimately just sort of setting the table for what made them famous and brought all of this into the mainstream. Yeah. Honestly, the way I, 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 I like, I like to rearrange the succession of albums a little bit. I see life's rich pageant as part one document, part two, green part three, of this bridge because life's rich pageant is the album where Peter Buff's guitar, Peter Buff, Peter Buck's guitar playing, uh, st- uh stopped being so jangly and started getting more riffy. Uh, and you sure. started hearing that on life's rich pageant. Um, you know, a lot of it actually in an album songs like begin to begin these days. Um, those are some heavy rocking songs. Uh, that's where we started yeah. getting more riffy. Michael Stipe started enunciating his lyrics more. Uh, with life's rich pageant, he wasn't mumbling as much. I think there's a notable notable difference between Fables of the Reconstruction in '85 and uh, Stipe's vocals in that, and Stipe's vocals in Pageant in '86. Um, Definitely yeah. true. And, and of course, his lyrics became a little more overtly political and 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 more social commentary in it. Document I see as a sharpening of life's rich pageant, sharpened to like a knife, and like you said, big bombastic. Um, and just this flat out, just big arena rock and roll, you know, and, uh, document was that and document was the album that brought him to the mainstream. Okay. Uh, I also like uh green. I'm a big fan of green because for nostalgic reasons, green is what got me into REM when I was a kid. You know, th- th- that's the one that got me into them when I heard stand, you know, the, that huge, hit uh, that they had and what i loved about about green green is kind of a 50 50 record it has one foot in like the heavy rock of document songs like orange crush which are awesome turn you inside out you know uh, get up pop song 89 but it also has like you said you know mandolin peter buck you know uh, the the, uh, acoustic folky peter buck which is really like a lot of where his uh uh um, his musical influences really uh, lay, and uh, Green Green, if anything, is the true bridge record between you know super political, in your face, big guitar riff in REM, and then the acoustic textured REM of the of the of the next two records, Out of Time and Automatic for the People. Um, so that's the way I kind of see it. Although I see Green as the third part of that electric guitar trilogy of you know Live Switch, Pageant, yeah. Document, and Green. So. 
there you go. Uh, REM, uh, it runs headfirst into mainstream uh, stardom, uh, keeping some of that aesthetic that made them great. And they didn't really let selling out uh, affect their arc. I think that's the most important yeah, part. Yeah. Is yeah. I mean, they 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 signed a big big ass money contract, uh, but it didn't. Where they were headed before then was where they continued to head. Right. It was uninterrupted. Right. Exactly. So. And yeah, like I said, they they, they were the first of the indie alternative eighties. Well, they were the best, like you said, they were the best of those bands and they were the first of those bands to break through to the mainstream as they did. By the end of the eighties, they were a genuine arena rock band. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Yep. So speaking of arena rock, we'll talk about our next little segment here is I call it make it funky. Now, what the hell does that mean, Chris? I'll explain to you what it means. Okay. All right. By all means, go ahead. So in 1994, we're going to the future a little bit here. Korn released their self-titled debut album. Now, it's rightfully regarded as the first new metal album, where heavy metal is grafted with elements of funk groove. Two years earlier, Rage Against the Machine invented rap metal with their pioneering debut album, where metal and hip-hop fused seamlessly while uh, standard singing vocals were done away with entirely in favor of rapping. We'll talk a lot about Rage Against the Machine two episodes from now. However, we curmudgeons argue that none of these landmark albums would have been possible without the influence of two bands from the opposite ends of California's rock spectrum, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More, particularly the stuff they did between 1987 and 1990. Now, the Chili Peppers. Everyone knows the Red Hot Chili Peppers now. I mean, they're, they're an iconic Hall of Fame band. But back in the 80s, they were a pack of misfit junkie punks who blasted out of Los Angeles in the 80s with a pair of albums, 1984's self-titled debut and 1985's George Clinton-produced Freaky Styley, that were pretty groundbreaking in their own way. Plen- plenty of punk and post-punk bands in the late 1970s, early 80s delved into funk, but none of them drew so richly and deeply from the Parliament funkadelic vein, both musically and aesthetically, as the Chili Peppers did. On one hand, it was backward looking in a way, but on the other hand, it was very forward looking in the sense that no white rock band had ever gone so far deep into the funk that their rock element was almost completely subsumed. Uh, more than any R&B or soul act of the 1980s, not named Prince, uh, they redefined and recalibrated funk for a then new generation of music fans. And in the Chili's uh, specific case, for young white rock fans. Um, the Chili Peppers raised their game for 1987's The Uplift Mofo Party Plan. Uh, Jack Irons is hard-hitting drums and Hillel Slovak's more rock-infused guitar pyrotechnics push the album to a near crossover, uh, hitting the Billboard 200 for the first time in the band's career and even producing a modest MTV hit with the slightly psychedelic California sunshine pop, well, Chili Peppers style, that is, of Behind the Sun. Uh, this was the album that made the Peppers a mainstay favorite of the underground skate punk scene, making them alternative rock fixtures. Now, anyone vaguely familiar with the Chili Peppers story knows 
about the tragedy that always clouded over this band. Slovak died of a heroin overdose. Irons left the band because he couldn't handle it at all. And singer Anthony Kiedis and bassist Flea, Kiedis who had his own heroin problem at the time, um, they had to reassemble and basically reimagine the band. That proved to be a blessing, though, with the eventual recruitment of then 19-year-old guitarist John Frusciante, who was a... That, that, that floors me. He was 19, yeah. by the way. He, 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 that guy's incredible. I know. He was a massive Peppers fan, and he idolized Slovak's guitar work. Um, once Chad Smith joined up on drums, the Chili Peppers had what most fans consider to be the band's classic lineup. The result was what at least this curmudgeon considers to be their first masterpiece album, 1989's Mother's Milk. Uh, Michael Beinhorn's slightly muffled production really cannot conceal the sheer power of this new band. Uh, The funk is on steroids. The rock guitar sound is on steroids. The songwriting is improved by leaps and bounds. Uh, See the drug rehab anthem, Knock Me Down, and the Native American protest anthem, Johnny Kick a Hole in the Sky. The band also embraced punk rock elements of thrash uh, and thrash metal more than on any album before or since. Uh, For example, the maniacally intense Nobody Weird Like Me and the MTV diss track uh, Punk Rock Classic. The album was also a definite crossover hit, hitting number 52 on the Billboard album chart and producing a genuine rock radio hit with their ferocious cover of Stevie Wonder's Higher Ground, to this day one of the Chili Peppers' biggest hits and defining songs. Um, The Uplift Mofo Party Plan and Mother's Milk were the band's last two albums for EMI Records before they moved on to Greener Pastures on Warner Brothers. But they were pivotal albums in the band's career in that they nudged the band into the mainstream, uh, setting up the massive success with their following album, which we'll talk about in the next episode, 1991. Uh, More importantly, their unique blend of punk, funk, and rap finally caught on to a wider audience, helping to make such an amalgam commonplace uh, in 1990s rock. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. And as far as their influence, you mentioned something really, uh, this is pivotal. Uh, Here you had uh, a bunch of uh, middle-class surfer punk dudes from Los Angeles uh, that... uh, were able to do their own take on the funk and do it credibly to the point where, uh, if I'm not mistaken, George Clinton himself yeah. uh, produced Freaky Styley, yeah. uh, and uh, they just had uh, they did it credibly, and so they had their own aesthetic, like you said, uh, uh, the death of Hillel Slovak and the uh, hiring of John Frusciante uh, brought them to a level that. Uh, I think folks that had heard their earlier stuff wouldn't have imagined that stuff was good. It wasn't great. They didn't get great until uh, Frashanti came there. And it's worth mentioning that in terms of the credibility, obviously there's a wonderful grand history of uh, white folks appropriating black music. Uh, You know, that still kind of happens. Uh, It's kind of funny that at the, at the forefront of the golden age, that's when you get vanilla ice. (laughs) Uh, It is worth mentioning, but anyway, uh, Greg Tate, who uh, is a wonderful or was a wonderful uh, rock critic and uh, social uh, uh, 
commentator, uh, analyst, uh, thinker, intellectual. Uh, Greg Tate loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He actually uh, reviewed their album Californication and Rolling Stone and, and fawned over it and this idea of uh, Anthony Kiedis being, a, a, he's an example of one fine white boy who knows how to tap into his black soul <laughs> and knows how to and knows how to do the funk. So uh, they were credible, and that's the most important thing. Hey, folks, just wanted to jump off the train here for a minute since we just mentioned Greg Tate. Tate, who died this past December, was a co-founder in the mid-1980s of the Black Rock Coalition, which was formed to counter a still-pervasive narrative that rock and roll was white dude music, while R&B and hip-hop were the black dude music. This despite the fact that Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Ike Turner, and a few other black musicians essentially created the rock and roll we recognize today. Well, the coalition was a chance for black rock musicians to assault those stereotypes and reclaim some of that quote-unquote lost black identity. The BRC's most notable and successful affiliate band in this pre-fourth golden age period was Living Color. If any band had proved the thesis that black folks could, did, and would always rock, it was Living Color, whose prodigious lead guitarist, Vernon Reed, was another of BRC's co-founders. Yet, there's never been another album quite like Living Color's Vivid from 1988. The swagger of young black New Yorkers of the era was there, and so was the rhythm, and through singer Corey Glover's amazing voice, so was the soul. But man could they bash out, and man could read shred. Clearly influenced by Hendrix, but clearly an original as well. There's a reason the single Cult of Personality will never leave the airwaves. It's one of the coolest, wildest, and most intense metal songs imaginable, and is also undeniably black music. Cult of Personality was a really neat feat. It arrived just prior to black music of all stripes and colors creeping into the mainstream and dominating the 90s, and it contained the aggression, texture, and social consciousness that would seep into nearly all of the music that defined the fourth golden age of rock. The song was one hell of a prelude. And now... Back to our regularly scheduled programming. And the other side of this make it funky spectrum, Chris, is the San Francisco band Faith No More. Uh, just like Indeed. just like the Chili Peppers, they emerged in the mid-1980s, but they differed in that they had more explicit heavy metal overtones in their sound without yet without being full-on heavy metal. Um, Roddy Bottoms keyboards and synthesizer flourishes gave their music breathing space that a lot of metal at the time didn't have. And also, while the funk was still prevalent in their sound, it was more subtle. Uh, the Chili Peppers colored their funk rock with major chord progressions, while Faith No More resided more in the land of minor chords. Um, while original singer Chuck Mosley, their debut al- uh, with him, their debut album Introduce Yourself from 1987 yielded a a big college radio hit with the ironic funk metal of We Care A Lot, uh, while their musical template was already solidly in place when Mosley left in 88. New singer Mike Patton uh, elevated their music to unforeseen heights, both artistically and creatively. Uh, a vocalist with astounding range and power, 
Um, Patton could literally sing any style in the book, uh, contributing uh, the rich eclecticism that the band would explore in future records. But for 1989's The Real Thing, whose music was all written before Patton joined, the new singer, while a white guy, ironically, for the late 1980s, um, he pumped in a more hip-hop element to the band's sound with his alternately rapping vocals than the previous singer, Chuck Mosley, who was a black guy. Um, the band returned in kind by fine-tuning their funky rhythms to resemble more hip-hop rhythms in various spots in the music. Uh, throw in Billy Gould's over-the-top slap bass sound, and you had the building blocks of new metal right there. Um, when the three key members of Korn, singer Jonathan Davis, bassist Fieldy, and guitarist Brian Welch, when they all attest to this particular album changing their lives musically, you know how important Faith No More was to the development of new metal. <laughs> um, True enough. Actually, I would argue it was the follow-up to the real thing that was the real progenitor of new metal. But that is a discussion for two episodes from now. Um, as far as the real thing is concerned, the album was a worldwide smash with the single Epic being ubiquitous on MTV and effectively being the first monster rap metal hit song. It wasn't without controversy, though, all related to the Chili Peppers. Um, I already mentioned how the Chili Peppers and Faith No More's ventures into blending rock with funk and hip hop paralleled each other more than it being a case of one band ripping the other off. They really sounded different. Just listen to both yeah. bands' music during this time. They were very different. However, if any of you out there in listener land get a chance, go on YouTube and check out the video for Epic, which the band did when Patton was just 20 years old. Uh, here you have a wiry, vaguely athletic frontman with long, straight, dark hair who occasionally takes his shirt off and wraps his verses in a chest-thumping macho style. It's all very Anthony Kiedis-ish. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. He even dances a bit like Kiedis in the video. So it's easy to see why Kiedis was pissed off when the video took off. And uh, he accused Patton, more so Patton than Faith No More, of ripping his style off from the older Chili Peppers frontman. Uh, this would be the beginning of a pretty vicious back and forth feud between the two singers that would eventually see Mr. Bungle, one of Patton's many ensuing side projects, impersonate the Red Hot Chili Peppers being high on drugs on stage. <laughs> but that's fodder for another podcast. Um, before a brief moment in time, before the fourth golden of age of rock took off in earnest, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More made it cool and hip for the words rap and rock to not be mutually exclusive to each other. Faith No More, uh, to me, is a fascinating band because at the end of the day, that's a metal band. Yeah. I mean, that's not a punk band. That's not a rock band. That is a metal right. band. And so for them to be uh, looking at and incorporating those uh, black rhythms and uh, black music rhythms and the, the kind of quirkiness uh, that they had where they could, you know, they could sneak in Jim Martin solos right. and, you know, like. But, you know, the stuff they did after this, like falling to pieces and and all, all of that kind of stuff, um, just uh, they had a, a style. On it, and it really did. Absolutely. You can. That is very true. You you can draw a direct line from Faith No More to uh, all of those meth rock bands yeah. like Korn. <laughs> meth rock. I mean, 
I mean, that, that's basically what I call it. It was basically, it's a meth head scene. Or even, like, I don't know, in some ways, maybe Pantera mm. is like a is, is a cousin of Faith No More's yeah. as well. Maybe, yeah. Um, in some ways. But, like I said, so, yeah, they are a, a new metal uh, forefather. Uh, then Mike Patton is just a singular performer. He's kind of a mad genius type. Yeah. And, you know, he's done all of these side projects like Mr. Bungle and uh, there's a, a few other uh, things uh, that he's done. And so he's still uh, viable. But yeah, Faith No More, uh, one of the seminal bands, this 87 to 90 period, we're building the bridge. This is the prelude to the fourth golden age. Uh, Mike Patton and Anthony Kiedis are one or two of the, I don't know, what, what would you say, half dozen to 10 guys that really are kind of the uh, influencers, the major influencers over everything yeah. that 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 propelled out of that. And we'll be talking about many, a, f- a few more of those actually on the on this episode. But uh, you know, that's that's my take on on uh, Faith No More. So we just talked about the Chili Peppers and Faith No More, the latter being a pioneering metal band. Now let's move into our next segment about the definitive American 1980s metal band. We call this uh, this segment and thrash metal for all. I think you know who we're talking about, Chris. Yep, and uh, we are talking about Metallica, but not just Metallica. Uh, we're talking, as we said, in thrash metal for all, speed metal, whatever you want to call it. Uh, before Metallica became Metallica, yeah. In all caps and on a neon sign uh, fronted by wine and cheese millionaires, <laughs> uh, they had already become one of the best metal bands that had ever lived. I'm sure most of you uh, listening love Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets as much as Arturo and I do. Here's the thing that you may not remember, though. For a time back there in the mid to late 80s, Metallica had real competition. Yeah. In, f- in fact, you could say that uh, James Hetfield and his bandmates were one of four heads on a speed metal Mount Rushmore. The other uh, three heads belonging to uh, New Jersey Club contemporaries Anthrax, Megadeth, founded, of course, and uh, fronted by Metallica's original fired lead guitarist, uh, Dave Mustaine, and then finally Slayer. Uh, the death metal pioneers with a Harvard pedigree that forevermore will be criminally underappreciated. Uh, it was not until Metallica followed up Master of Pop Puppets with the wonderfully played but shittily produced <laughs> and Justice for All in 1988, and when the single won and its weird-ass video was played in heavy rotation on MTV, that Metallica became the cho- chosen ones among the leather jacket, scraggly mustache, head-banging set. A lot of whom, you got to figure, probably grew up to vote for Donald Trump in 2016, but I digress. Before then, though, there was indeed a genuine movement afoot. I mentioned the New Jersey clubs. That's where a lot of this starts. It's in the clubs of LA and San Francisco, and then just outside of New York. I know Metallica and Anthrax... Uh, they cut their teeth in uh, uh, clubs, small clubs in in New Jersey, which begs the question, dude, could you remember, could you imagine being in the audience 
for either an Anthrax show or Metallica at one of these. But they're basically fucking like bars <laughs> and with like 50 people in it or something. Could you just imagine being being in that room? God. Uh, well, one, one thing for sure is that we would definitely both be either deaf or near deaf uh, if we had, uh, if we had been there. But anyway, I, I I always and then and then throw throw, throw Slayer into that mix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But again, Slayer Slayer's a little different because they're a Rick Rubin find, and they were they were Boston, and uh, they they were a little bit more. Uh, and again, they were great, but they're a little bit of a kind of a smart boy collective. Yeah. They're they're very uh, not subversive, but what kind of they're challenging. They're almost like intellectually uh, uh, challenging band. But so let's go through this so that you had the genuine movement of foot here. Uh, so you've got Slayer that I just mentioned. They have their seminal uh, death metal volume, Rain and Blood, which was definitely made with the goal of scaring your grandmother, <laughs> uh, which I think they succeeded on. Uh, then in, from 1985, a little bit before that, Anthrax had uh, spreading the disease uh, that again, that's from '85, and that's just that's a great record. It's assaultive and intense, but it also suggests that uh, Hetfield and Ehrlich uh, may have learned a trick or two from Scott Ian and his bandmates, including perhaps the self-conscious, radio-friendly nature uh, that defended Metallica's 1990s work. I mean, if you listen to "Spreading the Disease," Arturo, it's just it's kind of a it's it's great riff album, very intense. But it also has uh, vocals somewhere between Ian Gillis and uh, Vince Neil. Uh, it's kind of hilarious in that sense, but still, a, still a great, uh, still a great record. And then you had Megadeth, uh, probably the worst of all these bands. But oddly enough, I do remember that their 1986 album "Peace Sells, But Who's Buying" <laughs> got a lot. Which is, by the way, is a, I like that record and I love that song. Uh, they, that album and the band got a lot of love from the after midnight programmers of MTV, uh, back in the day, uh, MTV was wonderful because you had the during the day, uh, MTV, which was all the pop shit. And then the after midnight stuff, which was basically metal, uh, live concerts and uh, alt rock and, uh, kind of college rock. And so that was the after midnight uh, part of this. And without that after midnight stuff, we might not have a fourth golden age. So I actually have to give it up for MTV. Right. Anyway, uh, also coming out of uh, Megadeth, here's some trivia for you. That bass line uh, from uh, the title song, Peace Sells, uh, was featured prominently for years in those MTV news segments at the top of every album. Oh. You know, that little doom, 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 doom. That was from Megadeth. Now, collectively, uh, this speed metal scene and these bands served as a welcome alternative to the rising top of poppy, decadent hair metal. Right. Now, thankfully, uh, these bands' influence won out in the end as all of their surgically, uh, surgical, musically impressive Mach 3 darkness eventually reminded people that it was Ozzy and Halford and Iron Maiden's Eddie and others, uh, including the Flaming Boot era, uh, N- Nikki Six, that all got them all into heavy metal in the fucking first place. Right. And it was not Janie, Janie Lane, it was not Tracy Guns, and it was not Sebastian Bach. Uh, so they remembered uh, where heavy metal done come from. 
and they were much more uh, aligned spiritually. So here's a shout out to this pioneering genre that put Metallica in position to form the one-two punch along with Nirvana that killed hair metal like a Texas-sized roach. Yeah. Uh, sound about right, Arthur? Yeah, I mean, and more importantly, it's the crossover rock, like mainstream rock radio success of the song One. Uh, that's yes. that song got a lot of airplay uh, on on modern rock radio at the time. So I would say, if you want to pinpoint a moment, um, it's that <clears throat> uh, 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 yes. the success of the of the one single that really was like one of the first nails in the coffin of a shitty uh, glam metal. Um, I don't oh, no, absolutely. You know, like, like, like I said, it was, the, it was that song getting on MTV and it's a, it's an incredible song, but getting on MTV and becoming that big hit and, you know, kind of showing that you could do speed metal and that the musical chops were there. Right. And it was, you could have this notion of beautiful music yeah. and intriguing art as like heavy metal by a bunch of alcoholic, uh, uh, mullet guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know the the, so. the the only thing I mean, like you know, nailed it on the head. And Justice for All, great music produced very badly, uh, and more in two points. The, the two worst parts of it. Yeah, it's a very thin, compressed sound. Uh, it sounds like Spot from the SST Records produced it. <laughs> you know, um, it's, what it's, it's what it, it sounds like Metallica produced by Black Flag's producer is what it sounds like. But uh, yeah. but more importantly. The bass is gone. There's no bass, um, it, which is stupid. Yeah, I know they were trying to pull a prank on Jason Newstead. They were hazing him because he's a new bass player. But it's hurting your album. Like, why are you doing that? You know, if it's hurting the music long term, it's not the hazing isn't worth it. And and probably worst of all, in my opinion, is the drum sound. You know, um, we've talked about this in our Metallica in defense of St. Anger episode. Um the St. Anger album from 2003 gets criticized a lot for its drum sound. And Justice for All, great music, great album, really uh, kind of helped usher in the fourth golden age of rock in several ways. But man, the drum sound on that record sucks. Drums are, hmm. drums are not supposed to sound like this. You hear that? That's the sound of a yeah. pen tapping my hand. Drums are supposed to sound like drums. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Not like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's even worse than that. It sounds like paper. <laughs> if 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 like paper was your drums, that that's what in the drum and injustice for all sounds I'll, like. It's it's pretty yeah. horrific. I mean, although we are more forgiving of injustice for all, uh, there is one person out there who wasn't as forgiving at the time. That is, of course, our favorite critic, Robert Criscow. Chris, do you want to hear uh, Robert Criscow's very very short brief review? of Justice for All. Go for it, dude. The quote, the problem isn't that it's more self-conscious than Master of Puppets, which is inevitable when your stock in trade is compositions, not songs. The problem is that it goes on longer, which is also inevitable when your stock in trade is compositions, not songs. Just ask yes. C+. plus. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a that's a a frighteningly good call uh yeah well everyone we have so much to say about this prelude period just before the fourth golden age of rock began 
that we're doing this episode in two parts. Uh, we may do that a lot, actually, in the coming months as this amazing series unfolds. Check out the back half of this curmudgeonly discussion in part two of 1987 to 1990, Rumblings from the Underground. Oh, and if you're wondering why you haven't heard our regular vault segment here, it's because when it comes down to it, the entire fourth Golden Age of Rock series is one giant vault. Hell, as vaults go, this one might as well be an Egyptian pyramid. On that note, we'll talk to you again in part two, where we'll start out by discussing the musical revolutions that took place in Manchester, England. Remember to join our curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock and to drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Peace out.